We also know that one essential step on our journey is to control the spiraling cost of health care in America. And in order to do that, we're going to need the help of the AMA. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check. And that was President Obama speaking to the American Medical Association in 2009, which that year threw its support behind his health reforms. But in Washington, when the political winds change, alliances can be swept along with them. And the AMA was among the many healthcare associations, including the Association of American Medical Colleges, the AAMC, to unambiguously endorse Representative Tom Price, Donald Trump's pick to be HHS secretary. And if you listened to our podcast last week, you know Tom Price wants to repeal Obamacare. So what does it mean to be an advocacy organization in the Trump era? And how does one pick its battles? First, you'll hear from Atul Grover, executive vice president of the AAMC, who will talk about what an advocacy organization does, why his organization endorsed Price, and why they're still committed to fighting for coverage expansion. Then after the break, we'll be joined by Manon Trevetti, the president of the National Physicians Alliance, a smaller group that grew out of the American Medical Student Association and is deeply opposed to Tom Price and his planned health reforms. But first, a bit of housekeeping. Please remember to leave reviews, ratings on iTunes and elsewhere. Every time you leave one, it helps new listeners find us. We have gone stagnant. Perhaps it's the, the winter chill. Perhaps it's everyone hunkering down for Obamacare repeal battles. But it would be very helpful to get your feedback on this podcast online. And next, here's a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by the College of American Pathologists. Pathologists are physicians whose diagnosis drive care decisions made by patients, primary care physicians, and surgeons. When other physicians need more information about a patient's disease, they turn to pathologists. Learn more from the College of American Pathologists at cap.org slash pathologists. Now, here's a tool grover. What's the biggest misconception about advocacy and advocacy organizations in D.C.? I think what's a, a very widely held misconception, particularly by some of the folks even in our member institutions, is that lobbyists are automatically bad. And, uh, you know, we have to sort of separate that out to say, no, you, you can use facts and, and actually educate people, and that's lobbying, and that's what we try and do is run off fact-based policy. So would Donald Trump say that you're part of the swamp? Um, I'm definitely part of the swamp, I guess, yes, because I, I, I did used to hold the uh, uh, title of registered lobbyist, and, and I'm in D.C., um, but I, I would hope that considering the theme of the administration in terms of making America great. Um, American medicine is, is pretty terrific. This system has its clunks, right? But if you think about what makes American medicine great, it's our academic institutions. And to be fair, there's a lot that is right with, with American healthcare. Yeah. Also, to be fair, I work for Politico. So if Donald Trump has any opinion of anyone in this room, <laughs> it's probably <laughs> l lower for me than for a medical association. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, but yeah, it's probably well, true. It's the reality. Yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about some of AAMC's biggest priorities, as I understand them, and you, you can correct me, tool. So funding for graduate medical education, mm -hmm. funding for research and academic medicine, and then funding for teaching hospitals. Would, would you say that those are like the three, would you say that those are the three biggest? 
I, I would say look at it in context. So the priorities for AAMC in academic medicine is to advance medical knowledge, to educate and train the next generation of physicians and other health professionals, and to provide care to some of the most complex, most vulnerable patients around. And so everything we do is put into that lens of how do you improve the health of all, including some of the most vulnerable in terms of working with um, some the poor and Medicaid patients, working with our veterans and having a close relationship with, with the VA. Uh, and um, that's all part of what we do. And so there's very basic sort of funding issues that, that everybody worries about in healthcare, which is you need to get reimbursed. But then there are these special things on top of it that we put in. Well, that's that's one major question I have for you. Funding in healthcare has always been one of the biggest lobbying issues in D.C., where healthcare organizations seeking dollars that might not come from Congress, does it get harder with a Republican president in the White House? You know, I think the, the, the people change, administrations change, but our policy priorities, our principles, our values don't change. Uh, and so I think, again, we make a fact-based uh, set of policy arguments. Um, we know that some of those uh, arguments may be harder to, to get by in, in a change of administration. We know that uh, some of the administration policies that, or at least what we expect to be the policies, uh, we may not agree with. Um, and that includes making sure that, that you know, we keep insurance for as many people as possible, hopefully expand insurance. It means that you know, we would have serious questions about how you would go about uh, doing some of these things. I, I guess I do want to come back to what the priorities are moving forward, but I guess just kind of writ large, in a world where Republicans have historically been more resistant to funding healthcare, looking for ways to cut Medicare or Medicaid, my understanding is that graduate medical education, some Republicans on the Hill have targeted that in the past couple of years. With a Republican administration, as opposed to a Democratic administration that tends to fund these programs more liberally, does that make your job harder, winning funding for these priorities? Uh, for some of them, it, it, it may, but uh, uh, you know the, the priorities staying the same, the administration changing, uh, and Congress's makeup all have a, a, a role to play here. What I would say is that the current administration uh, often proposed cuts to programs that we thought were vitally important uh, in their own budget recommendations. Like what? Uh, like cutting indirect medical education, which supports all the things that people are asking us to do when it comes to a major man-made disaster, mass violence, uh, the next uh, you know, infectious disease epidemic. And yet the administration proposed to cut those things. Uh, and so I think that you know, it's... It, the administration will propose what they propose, but ultimately, most of these things we're going to have to be dealing with Congress. And we've been dealing with largely a, a Republican Congress already. Uh, and we found that, you know, like any other body, there are some people you can work with really well and some people you can't. You know, I did see an interesting statistic. I, I don't have it on my fingertips, but that NIH funding under Republicans and Democrats, right. relatively consistent. Absolutely. And so NIH funding is a key priority for us. We our faculty, our staff actually carry out 50% of all the extramurally funded research done funded by NIH. And during the Bush administration, it doubled the funding of NIH. And this Congress has been incredibly supportive of trying to get uh, additional increases. We saw that in hopefully what would be the passage of, of the Cures Bill. Um, we've seen it in the appropriations process. I wish they would actually fund uh, the, the, the appropriations uh, rather than, than do another CR. But you know, generally, there's been widespread support for NIH and for research. 
AAMC spends a couple million dollars a year on lobbying. You work with some major groups like the Podesta Group, for instance. What do you think has been the most important lobbying campaign that AAMC has done in the past few years? I think in the past few years, the biggest and most important was the ACA. We were strong supporters of the ACA, not because we were choosing sides in terms of parties um, or even approaches, but the option to ensure an additional up to 30 million people, no, 23 million. Um, I hope we get to the other 28 million or so. I know you were citing the number uh, in, in Pulse this morning. Um, that was critically important to us because we're the ones that care for those patients. It's our institutions that are often caring for the people who are so vulnerable and are uninsured. We do a disproportionate amount of Medicaid, disproportionate amount of charity care. Uh, I think there were other things that we tried to tweak in the ACA that, that affected um, you know, quality metrics, that affected even graduate medical education. Like, for instance, it used to be that if a teaching hospital closed and their, their residency spots went nowhere. They disappeared into the ether. We made sure that those could be kept. So even if we can't increase the funding so that we can significantly address the doctor shortage, we at least weren't making it worse. So I, I would say a, as an overall package, that was the biggest thing. So thinking about the ACA, which is now, those negotiations were six, seven, eight years ago, the pie is not infinite. And even when there's more funding coming in for something like the ACA, pieces are getting carved up and different groups are fighting for their space. How do you know when to work with other associations, like you and the Federation of American Hospitals, just hypothetically, yeah. the for-profit hospital group, Chip Kahn, the head, was on right. Pulse Check a couple months ago. He might have some commonalities in terms of what his group wants, but at the same time, maybe teaching hospitals benefit from some provision that investor-owned hospitals do not. I'm, I'm just spitballing here. I'm not pointing yeah. to anything specifically. How does your association know when to ally and when to essentially fight against other trade associations in healthcare? Well, it's the old question, when do you lead, follow, or get out of the way? And I, I would say that you know we, again, try to put the health of our patients first, uh, because that's what our institutions care about. Um, but there are a lot of components, again, of, of different policies that are going to affect our patients' health. Some of them are going to be more unique to our institutions, dish funding, uh, Medicaid funding, GME funding, but some of them are, are bread and butter stuff. And even if um, our institutions fare a little differently than, say, the federations or, or the AHAs or the Catholics, we work with all of them. And so when we find common ground, it, it just may be the, the people leading it uh, are different or the organizations leading it are different. But remember, because we also have over 100,000 physicians in our institutions, we work closely with the AMA and many of the specialty societies. And yet, so with all these groups, all these coalitions, um, we know that there are things that we can work on together, things where one of us will lead, and there are areas where we'll just agree to disagree. How do you wrangle your members? You, you just alluded to this. You have 100,000 physicians, but you also have administrators, all kinds of different folks with different priorities and presumably different politics. So when something like the Affordable Care Act comes and it becomes a very Democrat-led piece of legislation, what is the reaction within your organization? And how do you decide, okay, we're going to privilege X number of members over Y number of members? Uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, I think I'm very lucky to work for uh, members, uh, institutions that whose people want to do the right thing, improve patient care, uh, and 
are okay with fact-based policy. And so our, our membership is a little different because the institutions are our members, not the people. And so it's the medical school and the teaching hospital. So that narrows the universe down from 1.9 million voices to you know a couple of hundred voices, which makes it a little easier. But I do remember having some of these conversations uh, around things like ACA, around you know what are priorities in terms of funding and, and limited pots. Uh, but they, they want to do the right thing. And ultimately, yes, we get some disagreement. And there's some policy areas where you just have to say we're not we're not going to engage on this issue even though we would like to because you can't get that agreement but i would say you know overall they're they're all interested in the same things advancing uh, medical knowledge patient care and education so the aca legislation that was an intense flashpoint in healthcare and politics we're we're at another one of those moments right now the election of donald trump has been intense and the aftermath too your organization has felt some of that Double uh, AMC's president wrote a week ago, after Tom Price was nominated, Price is a strong choice for HHS secretary. The AAMC applauds President-elect Trump for his nomination. Reading through the statement, there's no mention of Price's goal to repeal Obamacare or change the funding for Medicare or his other conservative policies. Some of your members were frustrated that Double AMC didn't come out and say we want to fight for these priorities. Do you understand that frustration? Absolutely. And, you know, I think as with anything, you you could word things differently and make explicit mention of that. But what I'd say is that, you know, again, our values haven't changed. Our principles haven't changed. We were strong supporters of the ACA. uh, And I would say that uh, in the new administration, yes, Dr. Price has many policies that we disagree with. uh, And, you know, you just mentioned several of them. But there was an election, there was an outcome, and the question is, would any other HHS nominee have held different policy views? I don't know that that would have been the case. And in the case of Dr. Price, we have worked with him. Um, I've worked with him personally, at least for six years. And when he was here recently in September, he talked about the importance of, uh, in, in this building you're in now, the importance of making sure there's support for GME, making sure making sure that that relationship with the VA and academic medicine stays strong, and ensuring that there's increased support for NIH funding and, and other research funding. And so, you know, again, our, our goals are the, are the patients and trying to figure out how we work with any new administration, any new Congress, to ensure that the policies are right, but not completely go up against an individual. So what I'm hearing you say is you're being pragmatic, that there are trade-offs, for example, the nominee could have been, you didn't tell me this, someone else I talked to last week said, thank God we got Price, it could have been Ben Carson, who, great neurosurgeon, might not be the best bureaucrat. Remains to be seen on that. So there's some trade-off there. At the same time, it, it strikes me a tool that a group like yours has lots of priorities and only so many fights and hills to die on. Right. So this is not the hill to die on, but there might be a fight down the line. Absolutely. And we're going to fight on the policies that are important to patients and to academic medicine. Uh, We'll always be happy to take on that fight. But, you know, we're going to win some, we're going to lose some. Uh, We're going to try and first find areas where we can get some common ground, work on those, uh, try to establish, you know, those relationships. And then we'll fight like 
anyone else when other policies come forward. You're going to fight for coverage expansion. We're going to fight for coverage expansion. And uh, we would not be supportive of any repeal that didn't include a replacement plan that ensured that at least as many people are insured. The idea that you're going to transition into something that doesn't exist is incredibly uh, dangerous for, for our patients. And I think for consistency, your president in 2008 said the same thing about the ACA. That Absolutely. The safety net, the coverage couldn't go backwards. It could only go forward. Right. That was one of our core principles is, you know, before you dismantle our current safety net, you've got to make sure what's in place is going to work. And I think you've seen that even again with, with Congress controlled by different parties. One of the things that um, because of the lack of Medicaid expansion in some states, you've seen a delay uh, and a decrease in some of the dish cuts. Because I think there's been this acknowledgement, sometimes it's just implicit, that, yeah, we've got to make sure that we, we get whatever care we can under the current system to these patients. And, and that's what it comes down to, is making sure that the patients get that access. And that's part of why we're going to fight for it. Doctors were trying to get not my AMA or not my AAMC trending on social media. And I understand enough individual doctors have told the AMA, hey, we're walking away, that they're keeping a list, which says to me that it's a significant number. Has anyone defected from AAMC over the Tom Price? You know, again, AAMC is a little different in that we don't have individual members. They are institutions. And uh, we've had some disagreement with leaders of institutions. And one of the things I'll say is that, again, they are they want to do the right thing. They're fact-based. And when we explain some of the more intricate facts about, you know, what does it take to work with any new administration and, and a reassurance that our values and our principles have not changed. It's the patient coming first. It's the trainees. I do think that there's... Um, you know, there's there's real passion out there for people who are very worried about what's going to happen to them. And we, you know, I'll give you an example of uh, at at our annual at our annual meeting a couple of weeks ago, um, what got brought up very often was DACA. Now you wouldn't necessarily think that we're thinking about DACA, but I'll tell you, there are 65 at least 65 students that I know of in med school getting training under DACA. Well, you're you're talking about the immigration, the, yeah, deferred action of childhood arrivals. And so the idea that when you have a physician shortage, that you would kick them out um, just doesn't make any sense, particularly if you think about if each of those 65 docs can see 1,500 patients, right? They're all going to primary care. That's 100,000 patients. It's 100,000 of our neighbors, right? And in particular, we know that these are going to be diverse uh, uh, physicians that are more likely to care for underserved patients. So, you know, we're trying to keep the the idea of what's what's best for patients in the end in mind. Kind of a last series of questions that are more general and things that I've been wanting to ask that have built up as, as we've been talking. One is just this idea, when it, when it comes to fighting for your priorities, there are different ways of doing that. There's mm-hmm. like the inside game where you're maybe heading up to the hill or you know using back channels to push a message. There's the outside game. There's spending ads. Like there are a bunch of different tactics that an organization can pull. What what is the most effective lever? I I feel like you're going to give me an answer like they're all effective and you need them all to work. No, no, you're not. I'm not. Um, and again, this is again the unique nature of working for who we do as our membership. Uh, our members have a combined economic impact, direct and indirect, and this was 2011 of almost 600 billion dollars. They are often the largest employers in their cities or states beyond government, and so. What we do a lot of is grass tops. 
because, and by that I mean our deans, our CEOs, um, who have the same values that, that the rest of us have in terms of you know, the best outcome for patients, they generally have relationships with their members of Congress, and they have the benefit of being able to get their member of Congress back to the campus. And I, I, I've, I've been on some of these visits when uh, the members are there, where you can actually take folks in a, a neonatal ICU and show them, here is training of uh, nurses, you know, respiratory therapists, physicians happening at the same time that you're doing research at the bedside, uh, at the same time that you're delivering some of the most complex care in the world. And I feel like that is um, a, a real luxury to both have such well-intentioned and well-respected members to work with that, that have that kind of access. Yeah, it's like you, you have the best home field advantage yeah. when you can bring staff in, when you can bring congressmen in and they can see yeah. the effect. And the reason I think people even take any of our calls from here is because they know we're associated with those institutions that they know from back home uh, that have been there to care for their communities, whether it's been the birth of a, a routine birth of a baby or whether it's been you know a horribly complex cancer case uh, or, or a major trauma. And, and there's no substitute for that and being able to get that message of what our values are across to a policymaker. Are fly-ins effective? I'm, I'm constantly getting, everyone tells me for Pulse, like this is my group, we're bringing 100 people to the Hill today. Yeah. Do you find that those actually move the dial? You know, we have, have not done a lot of, of fly-ins in the past. What we will do is, you know, we may have a group of CEOs in town or deans in town and take them over to the Hill. We may take them to NIH to talk about what regulatory policies are important, take them, take them to CMS. Um, and we found that those are, are very effective conversations. We don't, we, we've, again, because we don't have individual members, we've never really tried to say, let's get you know, all the, the faculty here at once. Um, although, so the way we engage with the faculty is more through uh, asking them to, to sign on to things, share things on social media, in uh, that way, but we've never really done the full and so I couldn't tell you whether they're very helpful or not. Which administration has been best for AAMC and its priorities? Oh, I love all my children equally, Dan. Um, I, I think that there's clearly, you know, we'll, we'll see. The, the jury's out. I think there are good things that have happened in almost every administration. So ACA, uh, and then during the Bush years, the doubling of the NIH budget, um, I think some of the you know work that was done in the Reagan administration uh, in when moving to the DRGs and making sure we had these policy payments because these missions are critical for American medicine and, and health. Um, so I, I can't say that, that one, one administration was the worst or the best. So you have hope that the Trump administration could be good for health care? Could be very good potentially. It it could be. We, I think we don't know yet, and I think uh, what you say during a campaign may change, right? Once you actually take take that office, so we'll have to see. Um, you know, our job is not to pass judgment until the administration actually does something, and then we will pass judgment. Okay. Well, we'll have to check back with you <laughs> once that judgment is rendered. Tool Grover from AMC, thanks for making time thanks, today. Thanks, Dan. Hey, it's Dan Diamond. I hope you're enjoying today's episode. And we'll be back again in a moment with Manon Trevetti. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by the College of American Pathologists. 
Pathologists are an integral part of a patient's care team. Their work is critical to delivering the right care and treatment at the right time to achieve optimal outcomes. A patient may never meet his or her pathologist, but the value of pathologists is felt throughout the care continuum and in every patient encounter. Learn more from the College of American Pathologists at cap.org pathologists. And now, Minan Trevetti. You are the president, the relatively new president right. of National Physicians Alliance. Congratulations. Thank you. First, several important <laughs> elections in the past couple of weeks. Tell me about your association. Right. Well, the National Physicians Alliance is a nationwide uh, nonprofit organization of, of doctors. We are multi-specialty. We've been around for over 10 years now. And uh, our big thing is that we believe uh, doctors should be patient advocates, first and foremost. We uh, were organized and started uh, because of the reasons that, you know, we all went to medical school in the first place, sort of the spirit of service, uh, belief in integrity, and 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 the underlying uh, thought that all doctors should be advocates for their patients, especially locally. I, I feel like one of the expressions I've heard from NPA is patients over profits. Right, right, right. Is it fair to say then NPA probably skews younger and maybe more liberal than some of the larger trade associations? You know, I don't necessarily know. You know, I think we have a lot of mid-professionals, um, folks from all specialties, and I don't even know if it's necessarily liberal. Obviously, we're a nonprofit. We're not a political organization per se, um, and but a lot of our stances would maybe be perf- viewed as liberal or left-leaning in some respects. But on the flip side, you know, I think it's hard to argue when you say that we're putting patients first, uh, that uh, we're just doctors who believe that patients need our voices, especially patients who um, are underserved or, you know, can't be heard. And there's not many organizations um, like us out there. It's, it's very much a stance against the organizational large complex and more about the individual patient-physician relationship. I, I get that. Yeah. Um, I, I do think, though, it's, it's worth noting, you've run for Congress right. several times as a Democrat That's right. in Pennsylvania. So even if the organization is not liberal, I am presuming that you have some <laughs> liberal leanings. Right. I do have a background as a Democrat. I'm still a, a proud Democrat, but that really has, you know, it's a lot of that is irrelevant to NPA. And I, th- I would say that we have a lot of Republicans in NPA as well. And frankly, you know, many of the stances um, that we've taken, I, I think we have a lot of Republican, independent, and Democratic doctors who support and even now, obviously with um, this recent election, uh, I th- we're getting a, an amazing response from doctors who have, for better or worse, been dormant uh, in, in in many years, and, and they, they they're from all aspects and all sort of states and all, all all parts of the country who feel that they need to be standing up and fighting for their patients more. Well, let's let's talk about this election and let's talk about why we're speaking right now. Sure. Last week, association after association came out with endorsements of Tom Price, right. the nominee to run the HHS under Donald Trump. Price is a conservative House Republican, head of the Budget Committee, wants to not only repeal Obamacare, but change how Medicare gets paid, right. change funding, in fact, defund Planned Parenthood to right. extent. So he has some policies that are very much not the policies of liberal Democrats, and not the policies of some healthcare staffers mm-hmm. who want to see coverage expansion. And not only did your association oppose Tom Price's nomination, you wrote 
we are dismayed that other large physician organizations have endorsed Dr. Price without consideration of the harm his policies would inflict on our collective patients. Right. Tell me why you stood apart from other associations and did that. Well, we felt very strongly about uh, uh, this um, nominee. Uh, uh, Tom Price, as you said, has some real radical views on healthcare, And, um, you know, I think there has been not been a, a nominee for HHS secretary in my recent memory that has been so, so ideologically driven. Uh, and, and like I said in the statement, it, it's very concerning, and it's, I think it's a direct threat to a lot of our patients. And we were surprised, and our membership was surprised that many large physician organizations hastily uh, endorsed him. And I think many of those organizations are now backtracking or at least trying to explain. I think one of them, I can't remember who called this not an endorsement, but a congratulatory statement. So, and this is not, look, I'd love to take credit for this uh, as just National Physicians Alliance, but like I said, physicians are coming out of the woodwork, you know, from all parts of the, uh, the spectrum and saying, hey, let's look at what he's uh, proposed, look at what he stood for, and examine if this is going to be good for our patients. I, I want to respond to that, but first, just clarifying where I, sure. I think I might sit as, as someone who talks to folks on both sides. When the Obama team took office and Don Berwick was put forward as the guy to run CMS, plenty of arguments that he was ideological, just in a very different way, that his belief in coverage expansion and that the National Health Service in England was the way to go, would be very easy to sit down and find a Republican who would say very similar things, that this guy is incredibly ideological. And while Price is certainly very conservative, I I think there are lots of Republicans who share his views. So that... Well, it's an interesting interesting example, but I think, um, you know, as physicians, we're driven by evidence, you know, and... uh, we try to do things in healthcare that are evidence-based. Uh, we're not going to give you a drug that uh, the studies showed haven't worked. We're not going to do a procedure, hopefully, uh, that uh, hasn't been touted. And and I think in, in that respect, we also believe in evidence-based policy. And I think if you look at Dr. Berwick's stances, he was it's very much driven by evidence, uh, whereas um, uh, Tom Price and uh, Paul Ryan and a lot of the Republicans in Congress have this ideology uh, that I think, forgets about the outcomes. And look, you can repeal the Affordable Care Act. They have the numbers now. But what that, what's that going to do uh, to the 20 million folks who have gained coverage? Uh, what's that going to do to um, uh, folks with pre-existing conditions and uh, children who are under their health, uh, their parents' plans? There's some real-world uh, consequences to these, um, to these actions, and those need to be addressed. We had Alan Weil, the editor of Health Affairs, on this podcast a number of weeks ago, and we talked about the evidence in healthcare and whether it was being accurately portrayed. He was very upset with how Medicaid was argued, uh, I think, by conservatives that the program wasn't as effective at offering benefits and coverage. In some cases, folks have said Medicaid is worse than being uninsured, which I think the body of evidence has Mm -hmm. lined up and said that's not the case. Not at all, So getting back to the various associations, and you were alluding to this, the American Medical Association suffered, I think, the most blowback for endorsing Price, Mm -hmm. where members went online and said, hashtag not my AMA, started leaving the organization to the point that they've been keeping a list of the number of people who have left. On the flip side, has your organization, which I think is about 10,000 members? Roughly, yeah. 
Has your organization seen a surge in membership? Yes. Uh, frankly, in the last uh, week to 10 days, we've seen the highest uptick in membership we've ever seen. Um, uh, like I said, uh, social media impressions uh, have been the highest uh, uh, contributions uh, to our nonprofit, uh, as well as signups for membership. The highest membership uptick in your 11 years. So, I mean, with a relatively small association, yeah. we could be talking about 50 people or 500 people. Right. Can you put a number around this? I unfortunately don't know the number. We had a call yesterday that sort of our membership per- person said that, but I, I'm, we're getting the numbers today. I, so, yeah, you're right. It's, it's probably not, you know, thousands, but it's definitely the biggest peak that we've seen. Well, I, I want to flip this around for a second, Doctor. Sure. And, and your organization, which is younger, which is roughly 10,000 people, it is able to take these stands in part because it's not necessarily at the table in the White House. The AMA, on the other hand, 230,000 members. Is it possible that the reason they are endorsing Price right now is because they are waiting to fight on another issue later? Well, I can't speak for the AMA, so I don't. I don't, I don't know what their um, motivations were uh, to uh, en- endorse uh, Tom Price. And frankly, it was pretty hasty too. They, they didn't wait that long. I mean, so that I think that the fact that they're large, they, they were still able to do things quickly. And I will say that you know, during the uh, the push for ACA, National Physicians Alliance was very much at the table, and we were very much involved with all, all the efforts to to. Uh, to help pass this, as well as was the AMA, which is, I think, sort of really surprising how they would kind of almost flip-flop and now uh, endorse a nominee who wants to dismantle the very program they, six years ago, endorsed. And and they endorsed with some controversy. Some doctors at the time were upset that the AMA had come out Mm -hmm. in favor of Obamacare. Now there's the flip side of the doctors who are upset because for X number of years, this has been the rubric that they've been operating under. Right, right, right. Look, I, I think it's a realization amongst many physicians of what uh, these organizations have stand for. You know, I am not a member of the AMA, but I think uh, when you're a med student or you're younger, you think, oh, this is what everybody does. But then when you start digging deeper, you're realizing that AMA membership is is not, is I think one at one of the all-time lows as far as amongst doctors and uh, doesn't necessarily stand for all the things that many doctors are in medicine for. I want to be careful not to be too rough on the sure, AMA, sure, who's no. not, not here to defend no, no, I think, themselves. Like I said, I, I, was, I think yeah. they do a lot of amazing things, and the, it was so happy to see them endorse the AS, ACA. And I think that's why we were so surprised when they didn't uh, when they came out with this endorsement of the price. I mean, my, my sense, I wrote about this for Politico, and I talked to a bunch of folks across the advocacy groups. The takeaway that I kept hearing was, what should we have done? Who, who could we have reasonably expected beyond Tom Price? And given that there are some folks that Donald Trump may have considered for this job who weren't longtime members of Congress. And I, I'm curious, from your perspective, Doctor, who realistically do you think Donald Trump should have picked for HHS secretary? <laughs> well, I mean, if this uh, is a question about wh- who Donald, well, how Donald Trump thinks, I think you got you got the wrong guy here. But look, I, I think uh, there, there are certain principles that all medical organizations can stand on and say, these are the things that we want out of an HHS secretary, someone who can address the, the, the all recognized problems in the ACA, but not put coverage or patients at risk, but not um, uh, put the seniors uh, in a position where they'd have to all of a sudden pay uh, for almost all their health care after a small voucher, which is what, what Medicare privatization would do. So, you know, I think there were a lot of other options than saying it was him or 
Ben Carson or something like that, you know, which is, I think, some, some statement out there. You know, there, there are many ways you can say that uh, we uh, look forward to working with whoever it is, but have concerns about their past stances. Uh, so it, I don't think it was sort of a binary uh, choice they had. One of the provisions in the ECA that your group fought for, the Sunshine Act. Right. And that may now be going away. This is the transparency right, initiative. Right. How are you planning to fight and defend that? Well, look, I mean, we're fighting, uh, planning to fight on all fronts where we feel that our patients are at risk. And, and definitely the Sunshine Act is a great example of a lot of bipartisan support we had. Uh, Senator Grassley uh, I th- uh, helped push that out of the 21st Century Cures bill that still looks like it's going to pass, but without the, some provisions that would um, curb back some of the... the uh, conflict of disclosure that they would have had to make and stuff like that. So uh, I think there are efforts to uh, show that these aren't sort of left-leaning or liberal issues, but these are real things that affect real patients. And whether you're a Democrat, an independent, or Republican, you've probably been a patient at some point. And you want to know that your doctor isn't working on you with some bias, that there's some hidden agenda outside of making you healthier. And and so I think that's an argument that... uh, we're ready, willing, and able to make uh, that uh, that all folks would would uh, get uh, get behind. Given your belief that medicine needs to be protected from corporate interests, mm-hmm. who do you think is the best figure, either in the policy world or in the legislature, that really gets that? Like, who is the person who's crusading mm-hmm. to keep money out of out of healthcare? Well, I don't know if there's one person. I think um, there's a lot of folks who have emerged as some, you know, leadership uh, in the in the uh, Democratic Party. Senator Warren uh, gave a, a very strong uh, speech on the Senate floor against 21st century cures, uh, where she alluded to some of the the what she called, I think, in her words, hijacking by uh, the pharmaceutical industry of that bill that had some good intentions to increase public health funding, but then turned into sort of um, uh, an opportunity for them to really uh, curb down FDA regulation. We we oppose that legislation. Um, look, Senator Sanders, uh, in his campaign for president, uh, really tapped into um, folks who thought the the corporatization uh, of uh, America and especially in healthcare uh, was was deeply concerning. But you know, I don't think that there's sort of one figure that we all follow, and it speaks to the the diversity of our membership and the diversity of the issues that we're concerned. And frankly, we get new stuff every day because our members are on the front line, in the emergency rooms, in their clinics, in the hospitals, and seeing what's affecting the patients. And we've definitely seen an uptick of folks who are saying that we have patients who are on um, health care because of the Affordable Care Act who are coming in and trying to get everything done because they don't know what's going to happen on January 20th, uh, that, that are, that are uh, incredibly nervous about uh, the future of their health care and are putting off decisions because um, they're not sure if they're going to be covered uh, within the next year. That's all for Pulse Check today. Thanks to Bridget Mulcahy, our producer. Please remember to find and subscribe to the podcast online. Every time you leave a rating, it helps us out. Please stay tuned for next week's episode. We'll be back again. And it looks like Steve Case will be our guest, founder of AOL and the healthcare investor. Talk to you soon.